Let's stand and begin to enter into his presence with uh, praise and thanksgiving. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Tie Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Ye in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Ye 
Yela rotararadi ekasi, she seki elo rotararatatahami. Mama makahai erebi ki ekolo rototo bubuko sahai. Yeki e mama mama hasahai. Yelo rotolo rotoboko shasahai. Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Woo, my, mama, mama, kahai, mama, mahasahai. Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. You may be seated. God bless you. I, I've got a testimony. <laughs> uh, I, yesterday afternoon and uh, before I came to church, I was, whoo, I was really tired. In fact, I, I almost never take a nap in the daytime, but I, I I tried to rest some yesterday afternoon, and I was really tired coming to church last night. And when I left church last night, I felt as rested as I was before we started Tuesday night. Amen. I, I remember... The call to war in March, or the manifest call to war in March 2011. People have looked at me very skeptically over the years. When I've told them that we did nine hours of warfare on Thursday and nine hours of warfare on Friday. And that I really wasn't even tired when the meeting was over with. And those of you that were there, remember that meeting was five nights and four days. But the Spirit of the Lord just so put back into us that uh, I wasn't even rested. And I, I left here last night and I went, like, whoa, uh, this is amazing. So that's my testimony and I'm thankful for the Lord the Lord's help <clears throat> and actually I sound bad but for a call to war on Friday I'm doing really good <laughs> I've had too many sessions where um, the Friday sessions of call to war who I could barely talk so the Lord's really helping I want to I'm going to talk to you a little bit and and what I'm about to cover is, again, introduction, and it, it may take five minutes, it may take three hours, and then I teach an hour or so on what my subject is, but we'll see, okay. But every book of the Bible is important, every book of the Bible is important, but when it comes to the mystery of God, the kingdom of God, the plan, the purpose of God, there is no book, in my opinion, in the New Testament with more significant instruction than the book of Ephesians. And we spent a considerable period of time on Wednesday morning 
going through chapters 1 and 3 especially. But, but I just want to give you a, a, an overview here for a minute, just as a, an introduction. Chapter 1, again, is the revelation of who God is, who Christ is, and who we are in Christ as the church. Re- chapter 2 is what the Lord has done to redeem us and what he's redeemed us from. Chapter 3 is the revelation of the power of the love of God in us and the place he has given us with the conclusion of those three chapters being verse 20, now unto him, this is Ephesians 3, 20, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That verse is great standalone, but it's so much more powerful when you connect chapters 1, 2, and 3 with it because it is the concluding of everything the Lord has said to us about the mystery and the plan of God. Now, notice in verse 1 of chapter 4 the word, therefore. He's changing approach. The first three chapters, he's dealing with the principles of God. The last three chapters, he's dealing with the application of the principles, telling us how to walk in and have what he told us in the first three chapters. So if there's no investigation in chapters 4, 5, and 6 and application of the principles of 1, 2, and 3, as he instructed in 4, 5, and 6, then nothing happens. Chapter 4 is about the structure and ministry of the body. Of course, it starts out with who the Lord is. Now, now obviously, there's other stuff in all these chapters. I'm just talking about what I see as the main focus of that chapter. And when you get down to like verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, there is no biblical way possible you can make those offices. They are not offices. They're not offices. They are giftings. They're not offices. The only one of the five that's also used, that the word is also used as a title of an office is apostle. But there are many people with an apostolic gifting, apostolic gifting that are not apostles. Okay? But the, the key point there is, is it's not defining these five primary giftings of the oversight ministry what we used to call or what others may still call the pulpit ministry, okay? But in the context, that's not, that wasn't Paul's goal. Paul said God gave these five giftings to, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting the Greek now, to fully equip the saints so that they can do the work of their ministry so the church can grow thereby. I've said this many, many times. If the pastor is the one who conceives the sheep, then he needs to be stoned to death. 
Because bestiality is a horrible, horrible sin. So the shepherd cannot be the one that produces the sheep. Sheep produce sheep. Shepherds oversee the flock. They don't produce the sheep. So therefore you cannot build a church from a pulpit. I know that flies in all the face of tradition, but that's exactly what it is, is tradition. Because the flock produces the sheep. Now, I don't know what it is in some other language, but in English, of course, the female sheep is a you. You produce the sheep. Spell it E-W-E, spell it Y-O-U, it's exactly the same thing. The pulpit do not, does not produce the sheep. You produce the sheep. Praise God. And so he talks about this and he, and he goes through the body and how it's structured and what it is and, and he goes through all of that. Then in chapter five, he begins to give very specific instruction on the, on the conduct of the individual member and also how to properly, biblically order your house. And from that instruction, uh, he continues a little bit in the chapter 6, but then this is where he goes, verse 10. This is where I'm reading. You've heard it before. Notice the word. Finally, my brethren, I am now sum up, summing up everything I've said in five and a half chapters starting right here. So I can preach about the mystery of God, the purpose of God, the kingdom of God, the plan of God. I can claim to preach the gospel, even the gospel of the kingdom. But if I don't do the finally my brethren stuff, nothing's going to happen. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the Greek is literally against wicked spirits in the, in the atmosphere. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take you the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always unto all prayer and supplication of the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in bonds, in chains, in jail, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I'm going to tell you something. 
I've taught, we've all taught for years. If you're, you're learning to be a preacher, you need to pray and hear what God wants to say. That's good. In fact, that's the first and most important step because if you don't do that, everything else you do is absolutely worthless. And now you put yourself in the place of being a false prophet because you're, you're speaking out of your own heart instead of out of the mouth of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. The next thing I must do, and I'm coming back to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, according to 1 Corinthians, there it is, chapter 14, uh, and verse 6, Paul tells us of four different flows of the Spirit that can that you can minister that rhema by. Now, brethren, First Corinthians fourteen six. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I notice he's not talking about gifting here. He's talking about a flow of the Spirit, the way the Spirit wants to approach the communication of the rhema. Except I speak unto you either by, and, and, and allow me please, uh, to add something here where I'm not adding to the word, I'm simply explaining what, what Paul is speaking. Whether I speak unto you either by the spirit of revelation, or by the spirit of knowledge, or by the spirit of prophesying, or by the spirit of teaching. The same exact rhema can be delivered in either any one of those four flows and the impact is different. If I'm speaking by the spirit of knowledge and it was supposed to be delivered by the spirit of revelation, it's not working. And that's not the subject for today and I'm not going to go into the details of that. It's a great study. Enjoy yourself. But the bottom line is this. It's a whole lot more involved spiritually to minister the word of God than simply getting something to say. Oh, God, give me something to preach. I prayed that a lot of times as a young man. Oh, God, I'm about to be embarrassed because I got nothing to say. I didn't understand that the more you learn, the older you got, the harder it was to find the will of God, not easier. Because when you're young and you don't know a whole lot, and your mind is completely blank and you're praying, if something comes through your head, it's probably God. Thank God. that's I got something. But when you're older and you've been studying and you're learning and you're growing... You get all this stuff you know intellectually, and then you have to let, have to trust the Spirit to help you sift through all of that and say, okay, this is what He wants to say. So those of you that are young and think you got it tough because you don't know anything to preach, you got it easy. Because you either have nothing or something. Praise God. 
<laughs> they just don't have any idea, do they? No, 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 no. no. But when you get when you get older and you've been doing this a while, and you know you 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 don't not, excuse the, the the terminology. You don't know nothing. You know a lot of something, and it all may be true, but that doesn't make it the will of God for this service. I had an older minister tell me when I was a young man, he said, I've got to be honest with you, there, there are things that I know that are going on in the church, and, and I decide they need to be addressed. And I respected that man, but i got to be honest with you. When he said that, that didn't, that didn't, I didn't get a witness in my spirit, that's the way God worked. Because all that was, was, was addressing something according to natural knowledge and ability and even if he addressed it biblically and with a good attitude, who said it was time to address it? I've told this story a few times. You know, you, <laughs> you're a pastor and you think you're supposed to save every sheep. And there was this one, several years ago, there was one particular family. They'd threaten to leave and, and I'd go talk to them. And they'd stay, and and then then they'd leave, and I'd go to their house, talk to them, and they they'd come back, and this went on and on and on, and finally, they caused me major trouble, major trouble in the church. Bunch of people got hurt, and some didn't make it. And I said to the Lord, how could you let this happen? He said, I didn't let it happen. You did. I tried to move them out of there numerous times so they couldn't cause that trouble. And you kept going and bringing them back. So again, then I've, some of you have heard this story, I'm sure. There was the other time. There was a young man who had lived right across the street from our first house. His whole family got saved. The dad had divorced the, the, the mother and the family years before. So even though I was only about 25, he was a, a teenager, about 16, and he made me his father figure. And so we were close. And, but, but when he got older, he backslid and then he ended up, ended up marrying to a girl that was a Trinitarian Pentecostal. And, 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 uh, I was distraught over that. But he, he finally kind of got through to her and her parents. And they all come to church. And then she had twin brothers who were married and they all came to church and everybody got baptized, got the Holy Ghost. And the brothers and their wives really, really grew and they became, they, they, I mean, they were, they became leadership qualified. They were in leadership. But the young man and his wife and the mother of the, of his wife and father, they never really, really, really submitted to the teaching. I, rem I remember the day. It was a Sunday morning. And like I said yesterday, the other day, I don't, I can't keep it straight. Uh, that holiness when I was growing up was, was taught or approached from a perspective of you shamed people into doing it. And so 
The Lord gave me a message that morning on the beauty of holiness. And I was thrilled to death. It was the most positive message I'd ever preached on holiness in my life. It was, it was positive. There was no threat. There was no recrimination. There was no shaming anybody. It was just a beautiful, positive message. And I was thrilled to death. That afternoon, Sunday afternoon, I got a call from Billy. And, and Billy says, uh, brother Wright, you got to do something. My whole family's, my wife's whole family's upset and they're not coming back unless you come and apologize. Billy knew me better than that. I'm supposed to come to your house and apologize for pre, your parents' house, your wife, your house, and apologize for preaching something that God gave me to preach. Billy, I'm not coming. Oh, brother, right? If you don't come, my family's never coming back, and I don't think I'm going to be able to come. I heard that, and I went, hey, that's your problem if your mother-in-law is running your family. You know, there's a thing called an umbilical cord that's supposed to be cut at birth. And when mama is running the family through the daughter, it's not just out of the will of God. The whole thing is cursed. And if that fits you, I don't know it, but God does. And and sister, if you're listening to your mother instead of your husband, you are so far out of the will of God. And that includes everybody that watches this. You're so far out of the will of God. Your house is so out of divine order. There's, it's not only a lack of blessing on your house, there's a curse on your house. That was just a little word for somebody there, so let's go on. So, so I said, Billy, I'm sorry I can't come. Well, we found out who the king of that family was. Mama said, we're not coming back. So Billy and his wife didn't come back. Her husband didn't come back. You know those two, the twin sons and their families that were doing so good? They didn't come back either. The next Sunday, we started service and I was ready to preach. The Holy Ghost fell so greatly. I didn't get to preach. People got the Holy Ghost. People got healed. People got delivered. We went about two and a half, three hours like that. I mean, it was just amazing. And I said, okay, Lord, I guess you cleaned house. Because now, because we weren't having services like that. And I'm beginning to think I know why. So I'm thrilled over that. Next Sunday, we come to church, try to start service. Can't. God takes over. Can't have church. We have a move of God. We pray. People get the Holy Ghost. People get baptized. People get healed. People get delivered. And, and, and the service just, I mean, you know, we, we got out of there 1230, 1 o'clock. The third Sunday. I'm, I, I'm sure I'm going to get to preach this Sunday. I've got to preach the last two Sundays. Same thing. Seven Sunday mornings in a row. And the Lord replaced that, the numbers of the people that left because of that message about three plus times. And they had a better spirit than the ones that left. Because they were born in the fire and they loved fire. 
So, you get a rhema from God to preach. You seek God for the flow. You say, well, do I have to know that ahead of time? Well, if you figure out how I always know that ahead of time, please let me know I haven't figured that out yet. What I do is I submit myself, Lord, whatever whatever way you want to do it, however you want to do it, let me do that. And then I try by his grace to 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 let him take it where he wants it to go rather than trying to force it according to some expected pattern. You know, when I was a kid, the word liturgy was just like being a curse word in Pentecost. Because we put everybody down that had a structured church service that knew exactly what was coming next. Oh, we put everybody down. And here I am at 70 looking at this body of believers that I'm fellowshipping with. I don't mean just you. I mean worldwide. And in most churches, you walk in and you know what's coming next. That's a liturgy, my folks. It doesn't matter whether it's written down. It doesn't matter whether it's handed to you in a program. When you walk in the door, who says we're supposed to sing first? Who says how many songs we're supposed to sing? Who says when the announcements are supposed to be? Who says when the altar call is supposed to be? Who says that a preacher is supposed to finish his message rather than letting the Lord do what he wants to do when he's ready? You know how many souls have gone to hell because preachers were determined to finish their message? Because about halfway through or so, God began to move. And instead of letting letting the Lord have his way right then, because people were moved, people were praying, people were ready. No, it's God, you can't do this now. I'm not finished with my message. And by the time you get finished, all that was flowing and happening a little while ago, you just killed every bit of it. I'm going to make a statement and you can do what you want to with it. You can say, well, that's just you, Brother Wright. But if it's just me, then the Lord's a respecter of persons. I I don't know, Brother Ellis. (laughs) I don't know. But he has never, ever, ever let me preach everything he gave me. On any message. Ever. He's never let me finish a subject in any setting. Ever. So, I guess I'm a little bit jealous of these guys that always get to do their introduction and three points and their illustration and a conclusion. All their hermeneutics and homiletics and dotting all the I's crossing all the T's I guess I may just be a little bit the Lord doesn't let me be quite so polished as that in fact it just feels to me like he keeps stripping more and more polish off so anyway 
This is why I told you I didn't know how long the introduction would last. So, after you get a word, after you've committed yourself to flow in whatever way he wants to deliver that word, then Paul is saying that we should, I'm going back now to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19, I think it is. Paul said, when you're doing all this warfare and you're doing all this praying, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me. There's another where, another scripture where that word just happens to be used. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And here's the awesome thing if you, brother, sister, those of you that are involved in the ministry of the word, here's the awesome thing if you ever allow God to teach you. He can speak just as specifically through you in the language of your mind by the Spirit giving you utterance as He can when you're speaking in a language you don't know. Because why would He so supernaturally speak through you in a language you don't know in prayer and then, then choose to have a lesser supernatural method of delivering the word that people can hear and understand. Why would he do that? Why would he make this so supernaturally powerful, but then you've got to preach intellectually? I just have a simple way of defining it. It's just simply learning to hear and repeat. You just learn to hear and repeat. You just hear and repeat. You're not thinking about it. You're not planning ahead. You're just hearing and repeat. Okay? So Paul said we need to pray for that. And then he concludes with a few things. And then I just wanted to point this out before I go on. Remember how he started Ephesians? Grace and peace from the Father be unto you. Notice how he closes Ephesians out. Verse 23. Peace be to the brethren in love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So he started the book with an apostolic impartation of grace and peace. And he ends the book with an apostolic impartation of grace and peace. You want to know how important those two things are to the plan and the purpose and the will of God being able to come to pass and be fulfilled? He starts and ends with it. It's Alpha and it's Omega. So now... (laughs) You are sure you know where I'm going, and I'm sure you do do not. <laughs> That's the scenario here. He builds up. He covers all this awesome stuff, and any one of the points is all awesome and important. But then he comes down, and finally, and I'm saying to you, That our involvement with the stuff after the finally has to be conscious and purposeful. It has to be done consciously and purposefully. 
So I'm going to read that one more time before I start. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. I just, I, we just got to get this. And, and I know in this church, and most of you that are here from, that are not part of this church, I know you would consider yourself, here's our, here's our word, familiar with this verse. I, I hate, hate to tell you, there's not a single verse in the Bible I'm familiar with. <laughs> because no matter how much I think I know about a verse, it is so infinitesimally small compared to all that can be known that's being said in that verse. There's no way to ever, I cannot allow myself to ever conclude about any verse. Well, I know, I know what I need to know about that verse. So I'll just look at something else because when God wants to bring me back to that verse and I turn him off because I think I know everything there is to know about that verse I have just done him and me and the people I'm responsible for ministry to a great disservice finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might that goes back to Ephesians chapter 3 where he said that we would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man be strong in the Lord and the power of his might next verse put on the word the, the verb there put on is in the imperative tense the tense of command this is not think about it or isn't this an awesome idea but it is an active putting on i'm going to i'm going to say to you <laughs> The prayer I prayed was it last night when I, when I kind of prayed through uh, the basic elements of what I consider my positioning prayer. It can be repeated in a different way. It is the main element of that positioning prayer is a prayer of putting on. And whether I actually specifically say I put on the breastplate of righteousness, the things I am praying are putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And there are occasions when I will specifically pray through those things, naming them. There's other things. Other times I am praying about what they are and what they mean without ever identifying them. But the bottom line is, in positioning me, myself, through the Holy Ghost for the day and anything that could come, part of that is putting on the armor of God. Why does God allow so many terrible things to happen to me? <laughs> it's like a soldier in modern day warfare that could, that thinks it's too hot to wear a Kevlar vest or his Kevlar helmet. It's too hot. And so therefore he doesn't put it on. And the, and the, 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 uh, uh, Rifle shot that hits him in the chest and kills him would have just simply knocked him down because it would have put a dent in his Kevlar vest, right? That's right. So why would you go into harm's way without the protection that's provided for you? Well, I'm not going in harm's day. Do you get up in the morning? You may not recognize that the adversary is your enemy, but he fully knows that you're his enemy. And he loves it when you give him a free shot at you where you're not protect, protected. He loves it. 
And, and, and when God makes promises to protect you, how in the world can we fault God if we don't cooperate with Him and put on the protection that He gives us? Oh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Let me tell you what, in ancient warfare, You might not get killed by the blow that knocks you down. But because you're down and not up, you're on the ground rather than standing, you're about to die. Because it's essentially impossible to protect yourself once you've fallen down. In ancient warfare, there was nothing a soldier feared more than being knocked off his feet. Nothing. So all of these things the Lord is providing us, but He can't make us put them on, are intended to help us to stand no matter how hot and heavy the battle gets. My, 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 I feel the Holy Ghost here. My. Our problem is, Because we don't put on the armor. We at some level inside recognize our vulnerability. Which then says, I am vulnerable. I've got to avoid the fight. Because I'm vulnerable. But it's not God that left you vulnerable. I'll get into this verse again here in a little bit. But but when the Lord said in in Luke uh, 10.19... To the, to the men that returned after saying the devils are subject unto us through thy name. He said to them, behold, I give you authority over all the power of the enemy. Uh, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. You see, I want to be able to trust my father. And in order to be able to trust my father, I've got to first trust myself to submit to the father. Because if I'm betraying myself by refusing to submit to the father, I'm not just betraying the father. I'm betraying me. Because if he is, you know, if I am, I don't know who's rich here, so I'll have to use an American. Somebody's, everybody's used to. Anybody ever use a Microsoft product? The head of Microsoft is Bill Gates, multi-billionaire. Do you think his son is hungry? But what if his son was hungry? I'm hungry. Really? You're hungry. Your dad's a billionaire and you're hungry. You've got all these resources available to you. You're not hungry because it's not available. You're, you're hungry because you choose to not, to not take advantage or receive what's available to you. Well, Bill Gates is a peon and a pauper compared to my God, to my father. And if he supplied all this stuff and I won't take advantage of it, then I can't accuse him of, of letting me down when I'm letting myself down, but not by not obeying, believing his word, obeying it, and submitting to it. 
<clears throat> Amen. So behold, I give you power. Well, okay, I'm sorry. Go back to that one we were at. Which would be uh, Ephesians 6. Are we still at? Uh, 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 well, 11. That's what I thought. Okay. 611. Ephesians 611. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Lord willing, I'm going to go into that some tonight as we close out, but I don't want to get into the details of that right now, okay? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm a pretty simple guy, believe it or not. And I got a very simple approach to all this. See devil, fight devil. <laughs> if the Lord has allowed a principality to come against me today, then I'm going to fight against principality. If he, if he brings a, a, a power against me today, then, or allows him to come against me, then I'm going to fight against a, a power. If he lets a ruler of darkness come against me today, then guess what? I'm fighting against a ruler of darkness today. You understand the point I'm making? So, yeah, it's important to understand that. There's a ranking and all that and whatever. But bottom line, see devil, fight devil. Well, what if you don't see devil? Well, he does get fearful too and hide. You know, <laughs> there are some military principles involved in all this. There really is. Okay. There really is. If I'm getting killed over here and all, I, my troops are getting wiped out, I need to think about someplace else to be because I'm not going to have any troops left. And the only time he would fight to the proverbial death is if he is so convinced he can't afford to lose that spot, he keeps throwing troops in there no matter how many of them get wiped out. And there are places that are so significant to the plan and purpose of God, key places, that he will never stop pouring troops in there. And let me just say this here. I may say it again tonight. Who knows? But I'm feeling it right now, so I'll say it. You know, I've had preachers, heard preachers say, you know, we should really not be afraid because they're Two-thirds of the angels that are good on our side, and there's one-third that's not. It's not even that much. I don't know how much of the third is allowed to roam this earth, but I know there's a significant amount of demonic spirits that were put in chains of darkness. So the Lord only allowed enough devils to be on the earth so his church would have a choice. And the world would have a choice. And we need to fight. Because otherwise, what did the Bible say about Israel? They went into the promised land. And they got full and forgot God because the wars were over. They had to fight to take possession of of the promised land. Well, God, if you promised me this land, why don't they just move out? 
because that's not the way it works. He gave me a promise. This is your land. Now, the people that live there, they don't believe that promise. <clears throat> Was that so simple you missed it? The demonic spirits who participate with the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, they don't believe in the promises you've got. So we're called to do something about that. I've had people look at me and say, you know, preacher, you're just on some kind of trip. Really? Well, then the whole Bible is on some kind of trip. Because this is in here from beginning to end. There was war in the garden. There was war in heaven before creation. Jesus declared at the, the first mention of the church in the Bible, Matthew 16, 18, the first time the word is church is used, his introduction of what's coming because the church wasn't even in existence because the verse, the word church is connected to a future tense verb in first Corinthians or Matthew 16, 18. But so when he first told that the church was coming, he told of the war the church was going to be constantly in, but he didn't tell it just, okay, you're going to be at war. He told us about the war by promising us victory in the war before we even knew there was going to be a war. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Uh, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? Prevail in what? Are we going to have a tug of war contest? Are we going to play a football match? What does it mean prevail? When he said prevail, he automatically communicated conflict, war. But when in mentioning or in declaring that the church was going to be at war, he promised us victory if we'd fight. And then in the next verse, he gave us the weapons to do it with. But, oh God, how many places do we go where the whole focus is just having church? There's no fighting. There's no kingdom. There's no nothing. Nothing. You know, when I was younger, it would make me so angry to see people so bound by tradition, so caught up in that stuff. I caused myself trouble and other people trouble because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And now, I just trust the Lord that He doesn't send me any any place that I can't open my mouth. Because if I feel that stuff and He puts me in a pulpit with a microphone, I'm probably not going to keep my mouth shut about it. So Lord, if you don't want me saying it, don't send me there. It's okay with me if they never invite me. It's okay. I'm happy about that. 
I get to stay home and I don't get in trouble and then they don't have another uh, set of ammunition or to shoot me with. So, okay. Because the problem is, I, I can't, I can't just stand by and accept leaving people in darkness and deception. I'm not talking about the lost. I'm talking about people supposed to be in the church. I can't stand by and do that. I can't go play uh, at home. I don't know if, if you have ever heard of this or whatever, but I can't play the little kid, kid's game, patty cake. Patty cake, patty cake. Baker's man, bake me a cake. And that's what it feels like to me some places I go to church. They're just playing patty cake with the devil. He gets them only, only occupied enough just to keep them distracted. And they play patty cake. And they invite me to come and want me to play patty cake with them. And I want to set off a bomb and blow patty cake to kingdom come. I want to so destroy patty cake that you can't even play patty cake ever again. You may hate me and never invite me back, but playing patty cake's never going to be the same again. You see, when I was young and did that, oh, God have mercy. (laughs) Everybody had an opinion about it. You know what I like about being old and still being around here? I do it now and they just, they just, uh, they kind of shake their head and go on, you know. Because nobody is willing to challenge that now like they used to. And I'm not talking about Chester Wright. I'm talking about the Word of God. I'm talking about what God's saying. Nobody, in my opinion, enjoys being a part of a move of God any more than I do. But a move of God and good church are not necessarily synonymous. A lot of places I go, in their opinion, they had good church and there's no move of God. You know why? Good church will let you stay like you are and you leave like you came. But a move of God doesn't leave anybody like they were. Even those that refuse to respond don't leave like they came. Because when you are a part of a move of God, you're either closer to God when you leave or farther away from God when you leave. But you are not the same. And you know what? I don't want to be a part of anything where nothing happens supernaturally, eternally. It's like people that pray. But they pray temporal prayers. You may have heard me ask this before, but here it is from the Holy Ghost. If God answered every prayer this moment that you have prayed in the last 30 days, would he 
eternity be affected at all or only your little world? You want to know whether you're spiritual or carnal? Well, I pray that I'm spiritual. No, no, no. No, you can pray and be carnal because you pray about yourself and your world. All the stuff you want God to change. That's not spirituality. Muslims pray. Hindus pray. Is, is prayer automatically spirituality? No. And so just because you're a Pentecostal and pray doesn't make you spiritual. Because spiritual prayer affects eternity. It affects eternal destination. It affects kingdom things. Spiritual prayer does. But carnal prayer, if God answered our carnal prayers, they would, it would only affect my world, my life, my home, my family, my body, my place, me, 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 my, 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 mine, mine, mine. Jesus' name. Let's talk to him just a little bit. Let's talk to him just a little bit. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. He's my father. He loves me. He knows what he, what I need. It's his good pleasure to give me what he wants me to have, what I need. What he is determined that I need. It's his pleasure to do that. I don't have to ask for those things that I need. A good father takes care of his children. A good father learns to say no to his children. Because he loves them. So a good father doesn't always say yes. That's not what makes a good father a good father. Sometimes a good father says no. But he's a good father. So I don't have to constantly remind my father in heaven to do his job. So therefore, since he's a good father, he's my heavenly father. I can trust him to do what needs to be done in my life. And I can become a partner with him. A fellow participant with him in his plan, his purpose, his kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 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 Are, are you three sisters from the Philippines? You go to the same church? No, I'm just talking to you three. I'd like for you to stand. Are you preachers? You're a preacher. You have a licensed preacher? Okay. All right. Neither, none of you are. You, are you a licensed preacher? Okay. Good. That's what I was looking for. The Bible says two are better than one or three, four quarters, not easily broken. What if the three of you bound together that you are going to pray? Prevailing prayer until the Philippines was shaken at its very foundation. That was just thus saith the Lord. Raise your hands. 
Raise your hands. Raise your hands. There's a spirit of prayer coming to you three ladies. A determination to stand up, to rise up, to bind together in submission to your pastor, but to bind together to pray what you've learned in this meeting till the foundations, the spiritual foundations of the Philippines are shaken. In the name of Jesus. My God, my God, my God, you're important to God, ladies. You're special to God. But in the eyes of man, man doesn't see you quite as like God does. But the devil has just been put on notice. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray the covering of protection of authority over you, your families, your homes, your livelihood, your health. In Jesus' name, put on the armor of God and fight. In the name of Jesus. 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 Is your pastor here? That's your pastor. Well, I am so thankful. No wonder I felt the the freedom to do that because I was a little concerned if their pastor, what their pastor was going to think about that. You are their covering. You are their covering. Does this mean you're not supposed to fight? No, no, no. God's got plenty for you to fight. But you're their covering. And you, sisters, stay submitted to the man of God. Because you're not praying for this city. You're not praying for this church. God's commissioned you. Not you're the only ones in the world. That's what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm just obeying God. Okay? He's commissioned you to pray for the Philippines. I know Philippines supposedly has had revival. And I'm thankful for every God, everything God's done. But the, it, the Philippines hasn't even scratched the surface on what God is willing to do in the Philippines. Everything God's done in the Philippines to this moment has all been foundational. God is willing to, to rock the core of the Philippines from north to south, east to west. In the name of Jesus. 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 My God. My God. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now let's just give him thanks. It's different than what you were just doing. It's okay to clap your hands. But thanksgiving is given with the mouth, not with the hands. It's okay to clap your hands. But don't just clap your hands. Speak with the mouth and give him thanksgiving out of the spirit. 
Thank you, Jesus. 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 My, 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 my. Boy, it's working in the, in the service this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just a little side note. Just, just something that, I, that just thrills me to death. Do you know why Thanksgiving is so important? The Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which is the English equivalent letters of the Greek, is usually translated grace. But there are some places where the King James translated thanks. When Jesus said, if you love those that love you, what thanks have you? But let's do the literal word. If you only love those that love you, what grace is working in you? There's no grace working in you. Because the world, sinners love those that love them. You don't need grace working in you. But get this. The Greek words for the verb giving of thanks and the noun thanksgiving. The root word of both of those is charis. In other words, no one is capable of giving true the sacrifice of true thanksgiving to God unless it's produced by grace at work in us. And so therefore, and please, I'm not being critical, but so therefore, in Pentecost these days, we've gotten to where when it's time to give thanks, we clap hands. Because we don't know how to let the grace of God that we've received that's working in us enable us to express thanks to the infinite God. Because this is what grace is again. Yes, it's unmerited favor. But that's not what grace does. That's the motive for grace. God's unmerited favor empowers you and I to supernaturally do where we can... What we cannot do ourselves. So if grace is truly working in you, you're aware that you can't take credit for anything. And so when you give thanks, you are acknowledging to God, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I don't deserve this. I give thanks to you in acknowledgement, Father, that you're the one that did it. Yeah, let's do Thanksgiving now. Come on. Come on, let's do Thanksgiving now. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Father. Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing. Or don't be full of care. Don't be careful or full of care or anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with 
thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes, surpasses, is superior to all understanding shall keep Guard, preserve your hearts and minds. Have you got a troubled mind, Pentecostal? Have you got a troubled heart, Pentecostal? Then you're not casting your cares. Oh, he said I could make a request. Yes, there's only one request to ask. I cast this on you, Father, take it. That's the request. I cast all this stuff that's troubling my mind. I cast all this stuff that's troubling my heart upon you, Father. Receive it. That's the request I'm supposed to be making. Not, Father, fix this problem. Take away this pain. Relieve this pressure. Solve all of my natural problems, Father. That's not the request he's talking about. Because peace does not come because you've prayed about your problem. Because a lot of people pray and they come to God, and I'm just using this figuratively, they come to an altar and they, and oh God, I got this problem. Oh God, this situation's bothering me. Oh God, this is trouble. Oh God, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh God, I don't know what to do. And they pray about it. It sounds really good, but here's what they do. When they get up from prayer, they say, uh, Lord, I know you're real busy, so I'm going to take this with me until you get around to doing something with it. So they do all this praying so they appear spiritual. They, they deceive themselves into thinking they're spiritual, but they don't ever leave it there. I don't remember if I said it the first night or not. I thought I was going to if I didn't. But the Greek definition, oh, I did, I did. I'm going to do it again. The Greek definition of the word translated spiritual has two parts to it. The first part means to be filled with the Spirit. The second part means to be governed by the Spirit. That means He's in charge and we are not. And I am not spiritual just because I'm full of the Holy Ghost. I can be absolutely full of the Holy Ghost and be carnal because I refuse to let God be in control. I want to be in control. And so our attitude is, boy, boy Jesus, come here. I've got some instructions for you. Come here, boy. Come here, boy. Here's what I want you to do today. And I'll check back later to see how you're doing, boy. It's kind of harsh, isn't it, preacher? It's not harsh at all. It's reality. Because that's the way many of us pray. We tell God what we want him to do. Because we're not the servant. He's the servant. If he's the servant, then you're the savior. Good luck. Because that's all you've got. You're going to need it. But of course, when God is the adversary of your attempts to save yourself, no amount of luck's going to help you. See, that's why a lot of people hear the word and they're willing to get saved. What do we offer them? By the authority of the word of God, we offer them forgiveness from your sins, for your past to be completely gone, and for you to receive a future. And and we offer them the greatest gift known to man, the indwelling of the spirit of the divine nature of God. We are, hey, hey, you'd have to be pretty stupid not to want that. 
or pretty blind or pretty self-willed. So it's not hard to get people to want that. But they come, they, they receive that, and they, they enjoy that a little while, and then all of a sudden it dawns on them, wait a minute, this ain't free. Oh, receiving is free. But I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer the other day, salvation is free, the, the, the German theologian that was killed by the Nazis. Salvation's free, but discipleship costs you everything. Jesus died so that we can live. And we receive life from Jesus so we can die. I say, I'll say that one more time. Jesus died so that we can live. And we receive life from Jesus so we can die. And until that cycle is complete, I have not found my place in God that he wants me to have. He gave up his will, surrendered his life, because that was what was necessary to save me. And now, with him indwelling in me, I've got to surrender my will and give up my life so he can save people, other people through me. Because freely you have received... Freely give. Praise God. Put that last screen back up on the uh, scripture on the screen, please. I forget which one it was. Uh, thank you. Put on the whole armor, God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Next verse. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of darkness, this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. Uh, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. There's no peace unimportant. That you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore. <laughs> having your loins girt about with truth. Having on the breastplate of righteousness. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you may be able to, you shall be able to quench all the fire darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I want you to notice this is the order in which a soldier would put on his armor. It's not a random order. So go back to verse Let's try 15. No, 14. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. You say, well, this, this, uh, uh, is that to protect my loins? No, no, it's just telling where you wear it. The, the girding of truth that it's a, we would call, we would use the word girdle, but it's not a girdle like, article of clothing today it was an equipment belt that was worn around the waist the hip bones where you would keep your sword when you're not in battle or any other implements that you needed so the first thing you put on is that piece of armor that while it might provide some protection for the loins area, loin area, its primary purpose is to 
be the place where you carry your weapons when you're not in actually using them. So the, that has to go on first because the breastplate of righteousness goes from about the, the, the uh, collarbone area all the way down to the top of the girdle, protecting all of the vital organs. Now, what is righteousness? <laughs> in my life in Pentecost, righteousness was preached to me as something you had to earn by being good. You have to become righteous by doing right. There's a slight problem with that. That is so contrary to the plain, simple teaching of the scripture that it's not just error, it's heresy. Error is bad enough. Error is straying from the truth. But heresy is standing in opposition to the word of God. Romans 5.19 calls righteousness a gift. Isaiah 61 and 10 calls it a robe of righteousness. Galatians 3.27 says we put on that robe when we're baptized in Jesus' name. So what is righteousness? He that is offended in, who offends in one point of the law is guilty of all the law. I was in the Toronto airport years ago coming home from a meeting and, uh, I, there was a guy shining shoes there and I had a chance to, had a few minutes to do that. And so I, I like to do that for a lot of reasons, but you get to talk to the guy a little bit. And so I, I, I climb up on his seat and he immediately starts uh, to work on my shoes, but he says to me, I apologize. And I said, what do you apologize for? He said, I just gave away my last track to the last person sat in my seat, and I'm sorry I don't have another one. I said, and what what is your track about? He said, Islam. And so we began to talk. And I said to him, in any country that you know of, does a person who's found guilty and sent to jail become innocent because they serve their time? He looked at me strange. He said, well, no. I said, so if a person commits a crime and they're found guilty and sentenced, if they serve all of their time and they leave that jail, they're not now innocent? Serving the time didn't make them innocent? He said, well, no. I said, neither do our good works undo the sins we've committed and we're guilty of. He looked at me like he'd never heard anything like that in his life, and apparently he hadn't. I said, so here's the problem all religion has. You can't be saved. By doing more good than you've done bad. Because sin is sin. Guilt is guilt. And it can't be undone by doing right. It can't be undone by doing right. I said, so here's the problem. The only way I can be saved once I am guilty. And the Bible says all have sinned come short of the glory of God. Sir, have you sinned? Yeah, I have, I have too. 
That's what I told him. I've sinned too. So I have no hope of, of being saved. If I'm guilty and no amount, of, no amount of good I do can make me not guilty. Once I'm guilty and no amount of, of punishment that I serve uh, can make me innocent if I'm not guilty. Uh, if I'm gu- guilty. So the only way I can become innocent is if someone who's never committed a crime chooses to not only serve my penalty for me, but takes all of my guilt as his own, and then he gives me his innocence. His eyes got about that big. He said, is that possible? I said, yes, sir. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He was innocent. He took my sins and gave me his righteousness, his innocence. How about 2 Corinthians 5.21? 2 Corinthians 5.21? I'm coming back to 14 now, so don't forget that. For he hath made him. Let's do 20. Come to that. That's where I want to go. But let's go to 520. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though we, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's dead be you, Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Next verse. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now I'm going to tell you about this Jesus fellow. He has done some bad stuff. He's lied. He's been full of pride. He's bad. He's had bad thoughts. He's done stuff that's, he, he'd be really embarrassed over if you knew about it. Now me, I've never done anything wrong in my entire life. I've never had a bad thought. I've never committed a sin. I've never done. I, 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 my, I, my heart's right. He looked at me and said, how can you say that? Because he took all of my stuff and gave me him. He gave me his. He took all of my sins and made them his own so he could die for them. And then he gave me all of his purity, all of his righteousness, his innocence. One of my favorite verses, if you could put it on the screen, Psalms 32, 1. Oh, yeah, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Isn't it hard to believe? It's hard to believe, but it's true. Here it is. Oh, you know what you have to do? You just have to bask in the glow and the light of this verse. It's like, it's like walking out into the bright sunshine after you've been cold or whatever. And you just go, ah, I feel the warmth of that sun shining in my face. That's what this verse does to me every time. It just makes me want to breathe deep and go, ah, that feels so good. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered.
Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. How is my sin covered? Because he didn't just forgive me or pardon me from serving the penalty of sin. He covered me with his own innocence. The Bible says in James that the word of God is a mirror. Without righteousness, I look in the Word of God and I see all kind of things that condemn me. But if I'm wearing the robe of righteousness and I look in the mirror of the Word, I don't see me and my problems. I see Jesus. Woo! <laughs> is that good? That is so good. That is so awesome. That's so awesome. You, I can tell you the day when the Lord first spoke this to me. My wife and I had never had a honeymoon. And because we were living in Maryland and my, her family and my family at the time were living in Florida. We didn't have vacations either because when we took a vacation, we went home to see family. And trust me, that's not a vacation. So for our 20th anniversary, we went on a honeymoon. We went to the island of Bermuda, which is not too far off the coast of the U.S., about an hour and a half flight from Baltimore. It's just, it's a small island, but one of the most beautiful places on the entire planet. And, uh, this was back when there was, uh, film cameras. <laughs> Which was extremely expensive for me. The, my first day in Bermuda, I took 14 rolls of 36 exposure film. That's the truth. That's not an exaggeration. The next day, I got to feeling, I got a little worried. I got began to calculate in my mind how much it was going to cost to process all this film. So the next day, I shot 11. The day after that, I dropped to nine. The day after that, I was down to six. And I finally decided I can't take a picture of everything that's beautiful here because I can't turn in any direction without there being something beautiful to take a picture of. So I want you to get the scene, okay? It's the last full day, the morning of the last full day in paradise. Our honeymoon 20th anniversary trip. We'd never done anything like that in our lives. Our entire marriages. So, my wife was sleeping in. And I was up early because I was miserable. I was so frustrated with myself. I just couldn't get stuff right. No matter how hard I tried, I kept failing and failing and failing and failing. And I was just fed up. And it's early in the morning, and I'm in that little room praying where you, I could close the door, and that's all I'll say about that. And so uh, <laughs> I, I was just trying to keep from waking her up. And I'm praying. And I said to the Lord, you know how sometimes you say stuff to him because you want him to come back and say, it's okay. You know, it's, that's, not, that's not true. It's okay, right? Really? Really? You ever done that? I, I did that. I said, Lord, it's hopeless. I'm a sinner. I'm always going to be a sinner. And I waited. And he didn't come back and say, no, no, that's not true. You're not a sinner. 
And I'm, I kept thinking to myself, okay, Lord, okay, I'm waiting on you to get me off the hook here. And finally he did put me farther on the hook. Honestly, he said to me, uh, you're not only a sinner, you're always going to be a sinner. You're right. And I, I'm sitting there going, oh, what do I do now? Honestly, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? This isn't what I expected to hear. And so then he continued. He said, but I am in you. And I am righteous. And me being in you makes you righteous. And I said, in spite of my failures... He said, in spite of your failures, because your goodness and righteousness doesn't come from you, it comes from me. That's why Paul said, in me that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. I, you understand, this was 1988. I had, well, I was 42 years old. I had had the Holy Ghost, uh, at that point. 30 years because I received the Holy Ghost at 12. I'd had the Holy Ghost 30 years. I was 42 years old. I have now been a preacher for 18, a pastor for 18 years in the ministry for 19. I had never ever one time in my life heard anybody say anything like that in a Pentecostal church service. So I, before I could just accept that, even though I was pretty sure God said it, I went to study. And I started studying. And the next service, when I got home, the next service, he had me preach on righteousness. And I kept studying. And the next service, he had me preach on righteousness. And the next service, he had me preach on righteousness. And I'm thinking, okay, well, it's pretty good. Three times, that's good. Praise God. What's next? Righteousness, the fourth service. And righteousness, the fifth service. I'm honestly not exaggerating. Without in, ever intending to do so, thinking the last one on righteousness was the last one, let's do something else. He had me preach and teach on righteousness for 33 straight services, and that's honestly the truth. So you understand, he decided to put that so far down deep inside this stubborn, hard-headed man that I couldn't ever be tempted to take the credit for whatever good came out of me again. Ever again in my life. So you understand when I put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm putting all that on. That's what I'm putting on. Why? Because the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation. To them who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Hey. How do I get in Christ Jesus? For as Galatians 3.27, for as many as you're baptized in Christ, into Christ, have put on Christ. So he is specifically talking about my robe of righteousness. And therefore there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So how can I walk after the spirit? I can't walk after the spirit if I, if I don't have righteousness because I am so vulnerable to condemnation 
And the apostle John said in 1 John 3, if my heart condemns me not, God is greater than my heart. Whatever I ask for, he'll give it to me. Because the devil knows if you're not wearing the breastplate of righteousness, you're open to condemnation. And condemnation shakes your faith. And shaken faith shakes your confidence. And you're dead. In spiritual warfare, you are dead. I told you about Brother Barnes. Back in the 80s, I got a bunch of his tapes on spiritual warfare and on gifts of the spirit and all that. And I just wasn't getting it fast enough. So I'd never done this, never met the man, but I was desperate. So I called Brother Barnes on the phone. And I said, Brother Barnes, Brother Wright, he said, yes, I, I, I know who you are. I said, I've been listening to you, to your, your tapes and I, I just, I have some questions. He starts talking about the blood. He says, you know, Brother Wright, if you're going to be used in the spirit, you got to have a revelation of the blood. I got mad. I thought to myself, this is back when long distance calls were expensive. You paid per call. And I was thinking to myself, I've called you on my nickel. To ask, to see if you would kindly give me some inside information on how to be used in the spirit. And you're talking to me about the blood. If you just don't want to tell me any inside information, say so. I never said any of that, but I was sure thinking it. Well, when I calmed down enough to begin to listen to what he had to say, he was giving me inside information. He said, because no man will ever be able to fellowship with the Spirit or be used of the Spirit if he doesn't have a revelation of the blood because he's too open for condemnation. And the adversary will always come at you with condemnation if you don't have confidence that you're forgiven. So, I put on truth because... Everything hangs on the truth. (laughs) All my weapons are directly connected to the truth. Then I put on the breastplate of righteousness. Next verse, please. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So after I get on my weapons belt, and then I get all of my vital organs protected, now I'm going to put on my foundation. Now, in our world today, there's so many people involved in athletics and running and all of that. We understand the importance of having a pair of shoes in athletics that give you traction. Now, I play golf and used to golf shoes had little spikes out of the bottom of them. That's exactly what the army shoe looked like. They were made with little spikes through them so that a soldier could get grip on the ground. Because to use a sword, the power doesn't start in the chest. It starts with the feet. Because you have to be able to push 
You have to be able to push off your feet. You have to, the, the feet allow you to be able to, to fire the hips because the real speed and strength of a sword doesn't come from the arms and the chest. It comes from the momentum you create. And so therefore, if I don't have shoes on that let me stand I can't get power behind my weapons and also if I don't have shoes on that give me traction I can't resist the 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 the, the, the shield to shield uh, uh hand to hand fighting that sometimes occurs in this kind of warfare and so what is it that gives you first insulation between your feet and the road of life, but also gives you traction in battle so you can fight and win. What is it? Peace. Peace. Peace is my insulation from the the, the obstacles on the road of life I have to walk over. But the same peace that insulates my feet from the sharp rocks and, and other obstacles that might cut my feet, that same peace becomes my traction in battle. That same peace. Why is it called the preparation of the gospel of peace? Because I've got to let peace prepare me for life and for spiritual warfare. And I can't be prepared by peace until I receive peace. And as I taught the other day, and I'm not going to go all through it again, I can't have peace unless I trust my Father, cast all my cares upon Him, and give up complete control to Him. Can't have peace. Next verse. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now here's the problem. In hand-to-hand combat, when you're real close to each other, I can use my offensive weapon, the sword, as also a defensive weapon. So you learn to use the sword not only to thrust or to cut, but to block the the sword thrusts of the enemy but there's not there's other weapons you're trying to survive in a battle that aren't just the sword being swung at you and the devil has fiery darts that are that are shot at you from a distance and how do you survive that you have to be able to have something heavy enough, the shield that you can put up in the way and the dart will stick in that shield and won't get to you. And it was usually heavy, heavy wood so that it would, it was the kind of wood that wouldn't catch fire real easy because these are fiery darts and you don't need your shield catching on fire. Cause then what are you going to do with your shield? Throw it down. (laughs) Now, the shield is primarily a defensive weapon. You can block a sword with it. You can catch fiery darts with it. But 
You can also, if you get close enough to a guy, you can hit him with the edge of that shield. But that's not the primary purpose of it. It is possible to use it like that if, if, if the opportunity presents itself. But notice here, it is the shield of faith. Can I submit to you that the Greek word is probably in this verse more accurately translated as trust? Because the fiery darts of the adversary are accusations against God that are thrown at me. The sword that he has is condemnation against me. The fiery darts are his condemnations and accusations against God. That's why faith or trust blocks the fiery darts and my sword of the Spirit blocks the accusations against me and whatever gets past my sword hopefully bounces off of my breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith or the shield of trust. What's the difference? This is, this is just a little definition that is not original with me. I don't even remember where I heard it, but I have used it countless times in the, the decades since I first heard it. Faith is confidence in what God has said. Trust is confidence in God's character. Faith is confidence in what God has said. Trust is confidence in God's character. Can I submit to you that on a day-to-day basis, trust is probably more important to you than faith? Why? Because I have days I don't get a word from God. So how do I have faith When I don't have a word from God. Or let's take Noah for example. He got a word. It was approximately 125 years later before he got his second word. Hebrews 11 says by faith he built an ark. I submit to you he started building that ark by faith. But there were many days he kept building out of trust. Because he didn't have a word. In the military, this is the, the rule when it comes to orders. You obey the last order given. It doesn't matter if that last order was given five minutes ago. Five hours ago, five days ago, five weeks ago, five years ago, or 125 years ago. For instance, you know, it's (laughs) people that switch churches or switch cities or switch jobs without a word from God. Why? Because they... Wanted to do the switching. And God didn't give them a word. So they took it on themselves to do that. Well the Lord's not saying anything to me. That's not true. 
He only has to say it once. Until he changes that, he doesn't have to repeat himself. And if you believe God, when he said it that once, that's good enough until he chooses to change that. I spent four very lonely, difficult years at the Naval Academy. There was no church to go to. There was no one to fellowship with spiritually. It just wasn't anything. And when I graduated, in my opinion, I never wanted to go back to that place the rest of my life. In fact, that's pretty much what I told God. I'm not going back there. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go to visit. I, there's too much pain there. I don't want to go. Well, <laughs> let me tell you a little secret. One of the greatest clues to the will of God in your life is the thing you don't want to do the most. <laughs> is it true or what? Hey, let me tell you something. If you haven't heard from God, or you think you haven't heard, heard, from, God, heard from God, just make this statement. I'm never doing that. I'm never doing that. I'm never marrying a preacher. Now my wife is very tired today. She's not here. I'd say this if she was here. She was raised in a home missions church. Her dad started a home missions church. And her mother was an evangelist. So nine months of the year, my wife was in a home missions church. At 12 years of age, she was the pianist, and she led the worship because there was nobody else. Then, not, then three months a year, all summer vacation from school, the day school was out, her mother packed her and their stuff in a car and evangelized every week through the whole summer. She never had a summer vacation. She went from being in a home missions church to being an evangelist daughter all summer long. So guess what she said to God? I'm never marrying a preacher. <laughs> well, when she met me, I was a naval officer. Oh, it didn't take her long to understand I was called to preach, but she knew that was going to be a long way off. Because I had an obligation to serve in the Navy after my education. So she would, she just kind of figured, well, I'll get at least five years of not being a preacher's wife and who knows how much longer I'll get. So we ended up getting married. In her mind, she convinced herself she wasn't marrying a preacher because she promised herself she'd never marry a preacher. Two weeks after we got married, her decision was blown out of the water because I got my local license. <laughs> Two weeks after that, I woke up in the, in the morning with a severe pain in my shoulder. And our whole world came apart because they immediately 
pulled me out of flight training and put me in temporary duty because they determined my shoulder blade, the muscles controlling my right shoulder blade, was paralyzed. And they put me on temporary duty to see if the nerves were going to regenerate and I was going to be able to fly again. Do you know what I did for that year? I'd go into work a couple of hours in the morning, but the, my, but my boss, he liked me. He knew I was a preacher. He let me travel and preach evangelists. The Navy paid me, and he let me go. I preached so much in that year on temporary duty, I got my general license. Guess what happened two weeks after I got my general license? The Navy retired me from the Navy. But guess what happened before I got my general license? My wife loves babies. When she was 17 and I met her, she loved babies. She loves babies now. Now, for the last 19 years, uh, She's had her own babies. She had her too, but then she's got grandbabies. And so people in the church have been offended because she hasn't given the same attention to their babies that she used to give to their babies. But she always hurt people because when you had a baby, she would mother that baby till it got a year and a half, two, and then she'd give that one back to the mama and find a new baby because she loves babies. So we've been married. We've been married probably six months. And I'm still in the Navy. And she's hoping I'm still in the Navy. And she finds out she's expecting. So that's good. I was, that's okay with me. And she was ecstatic. But the month before... I got my local license, my general license, and six weeks before, I was no longer in the Navy. She started having pains. She was about five months along, six months made at the most. So I rushed her to the hospital. <coughs> And she lost the baby. They kept her in the hospital overnight. And I went early the next morning to see her. And she was laying in the bed weeping. I said, Alice, what's wrong? (coughs) She said, the Lord just visited me. And he said to me, now are you ready to go? I mean this in the kindest way possible. But the church in Annapolis, Maryland is built on the life of my first son. (laughs) 
It was seven years after the fact before she could bring herself to tell me it was a boy. That's how far along the baby was. Because she knew how badly I wanted a son. I didn't want a son so I could be a dad. I wanted sons so I could train them for the ministry. That was my motive. Right or wrong, good or bad, that was my motive. <coughs> you say, that's terrible. No. The kingdom is that important. Because as much as that was a sacrifice and very painful, I know others that lost year olds, two years old, three years old, five years old. Brother Ellis and I have a very good friend in Ohio that just lost his 26-year-old daughter. Bottom, bottom line, folks, is this. God is a whole lot more concerned about your participation in his kingdom than he is about sparing you pain. Why? I've said it over and over again, and here it comes one more time. Because the eternal destiny of the lost is hell forever. Unless the people that he has called and chosen to reach them do their job. But if I'm just in, come to church to be a part of church and I'm in it for me and I want to feel good and that's all that matters to me and when I pray it's all about God fixing what I don't like. I've made myself God and Him my servant. I, I mean, it just blows my mind. People that have been saved a long time leave church with the attitude, well, that preacher didn't do anything for me today. What? Do you know the difference between a mature child of God and an immature child of God? The immature child of God comes to church to get. The mature child of God comes to church to give. The immature child of God comes to church to be ministered to. The immature child of God comes to church to be a part of ministering. And when somebody's had the Holy Ghost a long time, leaves church upset because they didn't get anything out of it? Like it's... It's the preacher's job to do all the praying and all the spiritual warfare to affect how that service is going to turn out. When if you've been around here a little while, you've got just as much responsibility to pray for that service and what God wants to do in that service as the preacher, as the worship leader, as anyone else in leadership. Well, I don't have a leadership position. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Forgive me. You only have the divine nature in you by the Holy Ghost. Really? Okay, we've talked about the defensive weapons. Let's go to the next one. One last defensive weapon. Take the helmet of salvation. Notice that's the last thing put on. 
because it's hot. It's uncomfortable. In fact, most soldiers only wore it when they were actually in some kind of conflict. Because it wasn't comfortable. Wasn't padded inside. There was no fan blowing in there keeping your head cool. So it was usually carried unless you were actually in danger. Which is still true with most soldiers if they can get away with it. But what is it? The word, or take the helmet of salvation. The implication here is the experiential knowledge that you're saved. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. I'll begin reading with, oh, let's try verse 14. 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Next verse. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Next verse. And we have known and believed the love that the Father hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Now listen. We have known and believed. The Greek word there for known is to know something experientially. That's far more than knowing something simply factually. You can factually know that I'm married to Alice Wright. But I'm the only one that can experientially know that. And when I have experienced the love of God, I then can believe. And again, here in this case, this Greek word would be better translated trust. I believe, I've experientially, I have experienced the love of God. And now I trust the love of God. Next verse. Herein is our love made perfect. Herein what? Herein experiencing and trusting the love of God. That's how our love is made perfect. What's the result of our love being made perfect? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. The Greek word for judgment, the English equivalent letters would be K-R-I-S-I-S. Or we would spell it today, crisis. And I know that ultimately this is speaking about the final judgment. But what about all the preparation for the final judgment when I go through crisis every day? So how... Do I survive the crises of my day? 
by having experienced the love of God and trusting the love of God as the love of God grows, as, as my experience and my trust in the love of God grows, it becomes more and more. The word perfect, perfect here doesn't mean com, uh, 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 flawless. It means mature and productive. So the word, the love of God becomes more and more mature in me. My relationship with God and His love becomes more and more mature and productive as I continue to experience the love of God and as I experience to trust, as I continue to trust the love of God more and more. What does that do? It gives me, Greek word, you ready for boldness? Confidence. It gives me confidence in crisis. If spiritual warfare isn't crisis, what is it? So this to me is the definition of the helmet of salvation. This is the definition of the helmet of salvation. Because I know experientially the love of God and I've learned to trust the love of God and it matures in me and becomes productive so that I can have confidence in the day of crisis the daily crises here and the ultimate crisis which is the judgment (sighs) folks Do you understand that everything that happens in our day is God training us for the ultimate test? Amen. I can't imagine that anybody's going to fail the final exam of the great white throne judgment. You know why? He gives us all the answers that are on the test. How hard is it to pass the test if he gives you all the answers to the questions in advance? Right? That's not hard. You don't have to be the most brilliant person there is to memorize the answers to the, to the questions and just fill them in when the test comes along. Well, there's not going to be any secrets at the Great White Throne Judgment. Everything we're going to be judged for, we, we know in advance. And guess what? You know, there are, you, maybe you took advantage of it. People get tutors or, the, or there are services that will teach you how to take a test. That's what church is. We're trying to teach you how to take the test. And outside of church, the Lord is your instructor trying to teach you how to take the test and pass the test. How does he do that? Well, let's just take trust. He lets stuff come along to see if I can learn to trust him. And he's, he's helping me pass the test. But let's go beyond that. <laughs> the rapture in a moment the twinkling of an eye there's going to be a quickening and we're going to go off the earth well how do you know this quickening's not it and when you sit back in your seat when the quickening's taking place you've got your Legs crossed, your arms folded, you're sitting there while others are responding to the quickening. You're training yourself not to respond to the quickening. And you don't know which quickening is going to be the rapture. So are you going to make it or not? 
Are you letting God train you to respond to the quickening? Or are you training yourself to not respond to the quickening? Anybody home? That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Guess what? That puts not only church services in a different light, but day-to-day life in a different light. I, I, I hope this happens to you. It happens to me. I, I could just be going along. I could be having a conversation with my, my wife. And all of a sudden, something comes over me. And I just start talking in tongues. Now, depending on the situation, I may do it demonstratively or I might do it very quietly. But I don't ever want to fail to respond to the quickening. But when you let life and flesh and fear what others are going to think about you convince you to train yourself to not respond to the quickening, what do you do, do when the ultimate quickening takes place? But you have taught yourself not to respond. What do you do then? Oh, and by the way, I'm not going to go deep into this, but it's, I can do it. I said, not I can do it, but the Lord showed it to me. It's there. The same spirit that works in the harvester in God's field is the same spirit of the rapture. The word harvest and the word catching away are the same Greek word. So when I get involved in God's field, I am participating with the spirit of the rapture. So those who refuse to be involved with the harvest... They are refusing the spirit of the rapture. I was probably four years old, five years old. My dad was away uh, serving in the Navy in Korea. And my brother and I were home with my mother. I was four, four and a half, and he was two. So we we missed our, my dad so much, sometimes she'd let us sleep in the bed with her. And one night, I had a dream. I'm like four and a half years old. I had a dream of the rapture. And the church we were attending at that time was a good-sized church. And I woke up and told my, woke my mother up, and I told her the dream. And in this dream at four and a half, I named the people that went and the people that stayed. They were all gathered on the sidewalk out in front of the church in this dream. And the rapture took place, and there were people that left. I watched them go up. And then there were people who didn't leave the ground. And I woke up and named the ones to my wife, my mother, 
that didn't leave the ground. And here all these years later, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm not anybody's judge, not one of those people I saw in that dream at four and a half years of age died in a saved condition. So you got to understand something. Going in the rapture has been my spiritual focus since I was really little. The second dream I ever had, I saw myself hurtling off the earth, almost like a rocket being fired off the earth. That happened to me so young that before I ever got the Holy Ghost, every time I was afraid or every time I knew I'd done something bad, I would pray till I had that vision again. I didn't even know how to do that. I don't even know why I knew to do it. I never told anybody what I was doing. But that dream was so vivid to me and I knew what it meant that whenever I was afraid or whenever I'd done something bad and I knew I was in trouble with God, I would pray and I'd reach a point where I'd see that dream again. It was a vision now and I would see it and peace would come over me and and I believed I was okay at that point. I was very young. This is very critical to me, you see. This is all my life. So, the knowledge of salvation. The knowledge. Let me read just a little bit more here. This really gets good. All of it's good. Herein is our love made perfect. In experiencing the love of God and trusting the love of God that we may have boldness or confidence in the day of judgment or crisis because as he is so are we in this world next verse listen to this there is no fear in love there is no fear in love there is no fear in love but perfect love casteth out fear I used to quote it perfect love casteth out all fear but it doesn't cast out all fear. It just casts out fear. That's, that's all inclusive. So I don't think it's wrong to say perfect love casts out all fear. But it's redundant because it casts out fear. <laughs> there is no fear in love. Somebody needs to be hearing this. Somebody needs to be hearing this. Because all this teaching about warfare and dealing with demonic spirits makes you really nervous. Or can I say, makes you really afraid. And the issue is not the devil and your fear of the devil. The issue is that you don't experience and have confidence or trust in the love of God for you. Because if you were regularly experiencing God's love, I always say, Oh, praise God. How do I regularly experience God's love? Somebody asked that question. That's a good question. Here's the answer to it. Romans chapter 5. Let's go with verse. Oh, let's start with verse 1. I feel like reading a little bit here. Romans 5, 1. Okay. All right. I'm coming back to this one. I'm coming back to those, all those other ones too. Okay. I'm kidding. Not really. Uh, therefore, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hang there a minute. The word justified is the verb form of righteous. 
righteous, right, righteous, righteousness, and just, justified justification are all in the same family of Greek words. They're all related one to another. So it is justification that makes me righteous. And my Sunday school teacher said when I was a kid that justification is when God makes it just as if I had never done the sin. Which makes me what? Innocent or righteous. Right. So therefore being justified with by faith, we have peace with God. Why? Because Isaiah says that the work of righteousness is Peace. The work of righteousness is peace. I think it's out there 34, 17. I don't remember. I, I really, honestly don't. Don't hold that against me. Uh, but it's, it's there somewhere. I know it's Isaiah. Work of righteousness is peace. So therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Next verse. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Wherein we stand. Stand? What does that sound like? Spiritual warfare. Ephesians 4 or Ephesians 6. Stand therefore. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Next verse. And no, not, no, and not only so, but we glory in all of our victories. We glory in all of our blessings. We glory in all of our easy times. Huh? Oh, it doesn't say that? Oh, maybe I better look. What's it say? Oh, no. It says we glory in tribulations. One way you can translate that is trouble. But literally the word is thalipsis, which means... Those situations that cause you pressure. But you and I have a choice. Are we going to keep the pressure outside of us? Are we going to take control, take ownership of the situation, and bring the pressure into us? I can't have peace if I internalize the pressure. So when I take ownership of the responsibility and the problems and what's got to happen, I put myself under pressure. And you know why the devil loves that? Because the book says, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Where does, or the word faint there means give up and quit. So what makes people give up and quit? They get weary. Where does weariness come from? Frustration. Where does frustration come from? Expectations. Where does expectations come, or excuse me, where does frustrations come from? Pressure. Where does pressure come from? Expectations I put on me that God didn't put there. One more time. What causes people to quit? Weariness. Where does weariness come from? Frustration. Where does frustration come from? Pressure that I've internalized, that I've taken on myself, that I take ownership of. Where does pressure come from? Expectations that God didn't put on me. 
Because if the devil can get us to work through that process and he can lead us along blindly and we cooperate at all, then we give up and quit. And guess what? There's no harvest because the antidote, the the devil's antidote for harvest is weariness that causes people to quit. That's the only... Somebody needs to be listening. And I know you've been sitting here a while. Well, guess what? I've been standing here a while. So, so I want you to listen just a minute here, okay? The devil cannot stop the harvest promised to, to uh, Singapore, to the Philippines, to Indonesia, to China, to America, to Bangladesh. He cannot, or any other nation that's here. He cannot Stop that harvest unless he can wear out the saints and get them weary so they give up and quit. Malaysia, sorry. And how does that happen? We take all of our problems and we carry them ourselves. And we don't cast them. And we put ourselves under pressure to fix everything. And to reach goals. I'm going to tell you something. One of these times, I'm going to hear somebody talk about setting goals. And I'm just going to go off. And it's not going to be fair to them. Because it's been building up. Any goal that God did not specifically set. That you set. Is of the devil. Because the only goal setting God does. Is make a promise. Why? Because the principle. The intellectual humanistic principle for goal setting. The unscriptural carnal method of goal setting. Is to set attainable goals. And hear me right now. Every goal I set, I attain, I more deeply entrench myself in carnality. Every word from God, you know it's a word from God, the simple test, it's impossible. Every promise from God is impossible For man to produce. It's impossible. And so if you set a goal that's attainable, it did not come from God. It was not birthed by the Spirit. It was birthed by the flesh. Oh no, we need to set goals, yeah. If the church is a business and you're running it carnally like a business and you're administrating it like a business and it has nothing to do with spirituality but program and structure and organization that you've come up with from the business world, well, guess what? Everything produced by it's going to be just as carnal as the way you came up with all that stuff. And the problem is, The Lord said concerning man at the Tower of Babel, everything that he has imagined to do, he can do. Now that's scary right there. 
that God acknowledged that human beings were created with the ability to whatever they come up with, they can produce. But it came from man and it's produced by man. So I want to know, oh God, I want to know the difference between a ch- the Tower of Babel and a church that comes up with its plans and its programs out of its own heart and its own imagination. I want to know the difference. You say, well, there's a difference. Not in God's mind. There's no difference. Exactly the same thing. So what did God do to defeat man at the Tower of Babel? He brought confusion. Well, God's not the author of confusion. No, He isn't. But He can send spirits of confusion that are more than willing to do that when He takes down the barrier and lets them out. You ever walk by a dog pen where there was a vicious dog in there? And they're snarling and barking and whatever. And you're not afraid because that dog's in that pen. You know if he got out, you'd get hurt. But that pen, you're going to have to trust that pen because that dog is in that pen. But what would happen if somebody opened the door when you were standing there? You wouldn't be feeling so secure at that moment, would you? No, you wouldn't. Well, let me tell you something. When the Bible says that... A lion spirit was sent to the prophets of, of, of the king. What was this? Which one was his name? Uh, uh, Ahab. Ahab and, and Jehoshaphat was king of Israel. I mean, of Judah. When, that God sent a lion spirit. Or when I said a few minutes ago that he would send the spirits of confusion. God's not the author of confusion. All he's got to do is open the pen. The devils will take care of the rest by themselves. All he's got to do is take the leash off. And, and, and because God has them pinned up where they can't do any more damage than it's His will to be done right now, if He's got to let the dogs out to attack our carnality, so to speak, He will do it. Why? Because the lost are going to hell and cannot be truly saved by carnal churches. They can't be. Oh, I was going to talk about how to experience the love of God, wasn't I? Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Patience doesn't mean, patience is not passive, not biblical patience. It's not passive. Biblical patience, this word patience here is Greek word hupomene, and it comes from two root words, which means to stay under. That means, patience means, I trust God my father, that there's nothing that's come my way that he's not in control of. And so therefore, if he's in control of it and he's let it come my way, there is a purpose for it, a temporary purpose. This too shall pass. But the bottom line is, if God allowed it, God sent it, I don't pray my way out from underneath it. I stay under it until God is done with that in my life. How do I get there? Because I glory in my tribulations because they taught me how to trust God and stay under the circumstance. Next verse. 
And patience produces experience. Patience says, he didn't leave me in this situation. And while I was in this situation, he gave me grace to learn from it. And when he was through, he changed it. And it was so easy for him to fix And I let him. And guess what experience does? Experience gives me hope. And hope is beyond faith. Hope in in the Bible, the Greek word translated hope means confident expectation. A certainty. Not thinking, hope, or wishing. But a certainty you know what God's going to do. Next verse. And hope maketh not ashamed. If you got hope in God, you're never going to be embarrassed. Why? You ready? Here it is. <clears throat> because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So, you know, I want to experience the love of God. I think I will. Hallelujah. You know what I was doing? has experienced the love of God because the love of God is shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Ghost. And when I'm yielding to the Holy Ghost to let the Holy Ghost flow, I'm experiencing the love of God. So I'm experiencing His love. And I'm learning I can trust His love, which gives me confidence in the day of crisis. Hallelujah. (laughs) Are you having fun? I'm having fun. This is fun. This is, this, uh, this is, this is better than molten chocolate cake from Chili's. <laughs> Hallelujah. So we go back to 1 John 4 18. We're working you back there. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. He hasn't experienced the love of God enough. He hasn't learned to trust the God, love of God enough. Maybe he's not yielding to the Spirit enough, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Next verse. Here it is. You ready? Here it is. Next verse. There. I can't tell you how major this verse is. I don't care how many of you words are in it. We love him. What's the word? What's the next word? This is the reason. This is the ground. This is the basis. This is the means where? By. We love him because of, because of, on this basis, by these, this means. He first loved us. Why? Oh, Lord. (laughs) Hallelujah. There are three primary Greek words translated love. Eros, E-R-O-S, English equivalent letters of the Greek. That word is the most frequently found Greek word that's translated love 
in all of classical Greek literature. It is not found any place in the Greek New Testament. It is more than the, the word that's the source of the word erotic. It's far more than something with just sexual connotations. It is the attitude that says, I love, I will love you based on what I'm going to get from you. Because it's, it's what's in it for me, love. There's no place for that in the Bible. The second Greek word is philio. That word is in classical Greek and it's also in the Bible. And very basically, it is, it is an emotional love. And if you get married based on filio, emotion, God bless you. Oof. Because I've, I've said this many times, you can get up one moment, one moment, one morning and you love her so much you could eat her up and the next morning you get wake up and you wish you had her. <laughs> and you want to know what changed. Nothing. That's just emotions. That's the way emotions are. Emotions are fickle. Emotions change. They are. They, they're like that. But in a marriage and in a relationship with God, those that love God with filio, because Jesus asked Peter in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. But the Greek says it this way. Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, I filio you. Jesus asked again, Peter, do you agape me? Peter said, Lord, I filio you. Third time Jesus said, Peter, do you really filio me? Peter humbled himself then and said, Lord, you know all things. You know I filio you. Peter never in that context confessed to loving God with agape. Why? Because Peter was still in a condition where he trusted his own self for everything. That's why he's going to fight the people to come take Jesus captive by swinging a sword. Now, he's not that good with a sword that he could just cut a man's ear off. That was not his intent. He wanted to cut the man's head off. The man ducked and all Peter could get was an ear. And that was by God's help. Because if Peter had cut the man's head off, it would have messed everything up. How do I know that? Because of what Jesus did. By putting that guy's ear back on his head, there was no evidence to accuse Peter with. Because the whole day, the next 24 hours, was all about Jesus being the one accused. And Jesus being the one crucified. And he didn't want Peter messing up the party. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. So therefore... Peter's still doing it himself. He's fixing it himself. And so he couldn't love God by agape. Because the third word is agape. Filio is the 50-50 love, 50-50 marriage. We get married, I love you, I give you 50%, you give me 50%, and being married hadn't cost us anything. And we think that's fair. Yeah, it's fair to flesh. But agape love is, the word agape is not found in classical Greek. It is found in the New Testament because the Greek mind could not conceive of anything 
like agape. Because agape is when you love someone regardless of what they will return back to you. You don't love them less if they totally reject you. On that basis, as shocking as this may be for you, our Father loves those that are burning in Hades right now just as much as He loves you. They did not go to hell because God stopped loving them. They, they sent themselves to hell because they made the wrong choices. It's, the Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So therefore, if that's the case, there's nobody in hell by the will of God. Everybody in hell is there by their own will. That's a deep one, isn't it? So therefore, love. Love. God's love is based on giving love regardless of what comes back. In, an, in a marriage based on agape love, the only concern is how happy can I make my mate not has what the mate is doing for you is totally irrelevant. Correct. Boy, the flesh doesn't like that, do it? Does it? Well, there's only one way to be married by agape, and that's to let the Lord love your mate through you. Because men, humans, aren't capable of loving with agape. Unless we love him because he first loved us. In order to love with agape, I first have to allow him to love me with agape. So when I let him love me with agape, I now have agape to love others with. So the greatest commandment says this. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not filio. It's agape. The only way I can obey the greatest commandment is to receive agape. So I have agape to give back to him in obedience. And when Jesus said, if you love me, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, is if you agape me, keep my commandments. Because the only way to keep the commandments of God is through the empowerment of agape. There's another word for that. Grace. Oh, oh, I forgot one. And the second commandment is like, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as you love yourself. Oh, I know that second love is not in the scripture, but it's called implied. It's not written literally there because of the rules of redundancy. It doesn't have to be there because we know the construction of the sentence says it's there. So he said as the second commandment, I'm to love my neighbor 
as I love myself. Well, there's only one way to biblically love myself. I can only love myself by allowing the Lord to love me. And the love I have for myself is not self-love. It is believing and experiencing and trusting the love the Father has for me. That becomes the the, the definition of my worth. That's what defines the fact to me that I'm loved and therefore I can love me through the Father's love because it's not ego, it's not pride, it's uh, it's simply believing, trusting the love the Father has for me. Oh, by the way, we're still talking about the helmet of salvation. I have to trust the love the Father has for me. So get this. I, the second commandment is, I've got to love you with agape. But I can't love you with agape if I don't first let the Father love me with agape and I let that be the value that's placed upon me. I, when I was young, I used to pray this way. Father, or, or Lord, I couldn't call him Father then. I wasn't comfortable with it. Father, or Lord, uh, without you, I'm nothing. Now, please don't raise your hands if you've prayed that way. But I'm asking the question for you to answer inside. Have you ever prayed that, Lord, without you I'm nothing? Do you know how absolute, how much of an absolute lie that is? Are you saying to me that Jesus died on the cross for nothing? Do you think he would have died on the cross for something that was nothing? He never said I'm nothing without him. What he said was, I can do nothing without him but I must have been pretty important because if nobody in the world was lost but me he would have hung on that cross for me does that make me nothing that doesn't make me nothing that makes me something now I may be walking contrary to the world word and I may end up lost but none of that will be because God doesn't love me. None of that will be because he won't, He's letting me be lost. I'm making those choices. But He loves me. And the dangerous thing is when people don't wear the helmet of salvation, And then they pick up a sword. And we got people trying to use the word as a weapon. And they're naked of armor. And then they get hurt in battle. And they want to blame it on God. I said they get hurt in battle. And they want to blame it on God. And then their wounds in battle become their excuses to no longer fight the good fight of faith. Because it's God's fault you let me get hurt. No, it's my fault that I didn't obey God and put on the whole armor of God. Now, however you want to do it, however you and the Lord do it, however you all work it out, 
As I said to you yesterday, was it? I don't pray exactly. I don't have a list of things I pray in the mornings. There are general principles that I pray. And some of them I pray in great depth on some days. And some I just mention at other days. It all depends what I'm feeling for that day. Some days I may have hours to pray and i enjoy that other days through no choice of my own i may have a brief amount of time to pray but i i don't beat myself up that i don't pray four hours when i i don't when i only have an hour and it's not by my decision We love to shame ourselves or try to shame ourselves into doing what God wants us to do. And shaming yourself to do right is the absolute worst motivation there is. The best motivation for doing right is I'm loved. I'm loved. He loves me. I love him. I want to please him. And he's more than willing to help me do that if I just let him. And so we take up the sword of the Spirit and we pray prevailing, persistent prayer. I'm going to say this to you again. I'm going to talk more about it tonight, the Lord willing. Somebody needs to listen to me. In the American Revolution, where the beginning of the fight for freedom for the colonies in North America became the United States. There was a single battle started by a single shot. Nobody really knows who fired that shot. But the shot has been identified as the shot heard round the world. Well, let me tell you something. The American Revolutionary War might have started with one shot, but it took about five years to win. (laughs) Okay? And it never ceases to blow my mind how many people that I've taught spiritual warfare to that want to pray one session of binding and loosing, that want to pray one session of warfare, one session of intercession, and expect everything to change. We call this spiritual warfare for a reason. War is many skirmishes, many battles, many conflicts. And so that's why after the sword of the spirit, the second offensive weapon is persistent prevailing prayer. It is praying until... That doesn't mean I have to pray 24 hours a day, but it means in my spirit. Sometimes it may just be I'm walking around in my day. Lord, in Jesus' name, I claim the victory in this battle. Other times I might be on my face for hours praying and battling. But whatever the thing is, I've got to understand that a war is not synonymous with a battle. A war is made up of many battles. 
And battles are not always continuous firing at each other or fighting with each other. In a battle, that doesn't mean the enemy is constantly in conflict, direct conflict with each other. Sometimes in the battle, there's maneuvering going on. Troops are being redeployed and all of that. It's all a part of the battle. I'm going to say this in the Holy Ghost. I'm saying this in the Holy Ghost. If the just the people in this room, not count the ones that will watch this at some point. If you would get a hold of this and believe this and make up your mind, you're going to pray and you're not going to quit because God's promised victory. The gates of hell shall not prevail. If you would make up your mind, if you would believe that, that you would claim that promise and that you would pray until things change and you wouldn't let circumstances or fatigue or weariness or discouragement stop you from praying. I say in the Holy Ghost, you will see a mighty outpouring of unprecedented proportions. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We're not waiting on God. God's waiting on us. He's waiting on us to believe. He's waiting on us to act on the word. He's waiting on us to trust Him. He's waiting on us. We are not waiting on Him. But brother right, I prayed so many times and nothing's happening. Pray again. You don't know. You know, you can't see the work that, that, that your prayers are doing on the dam. But one of these times, one of these prayers, the breakthrough's gonna, gonna happen. You just need to keep on praying. Pray and keep on praying. And then pray some more. And then pray some more. And then war some more. And then war some more. Believe the promises of God and don't quit till you see what you're praying for. In the name of Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. 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 
Hallelujah. <laughs> Woo! Hallelujah. Ita ta ta atalaraka ta. Yeki ki eti eki atahasa ta ta ha. Ika 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 ti eka si. Iki ala ruta ta ta bahaya. Ila ruta ta babakasa. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. 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 Itahala rakata tihela rakata haya. Seki. Shekiela ratata tahaya. Hallelujah. 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 I'm done. But the Holy Ghost is not. Come on, let's pray a while. I'm going to lay this microphone down. Let's pray a while. Let the Lord cement this. Let the Lord firmly establish this in our spirits. Come on. Let Him do that. Let Him firmly establish this in our spirits. Let our minds become convinced. Let our hearts become convinced. Let our spirits become convinced. Let our souls become convinced. Come on.